Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. How do you get a songwriter off your porch in Nashville? How? Pay for the pizza. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that equips you to win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from Nashville songwriter Tristan. Yes. She's touring now for her album Charlatans at the Garden Gate. Look out, gnomes. <laughs> and coming up, Swamplandia author Karen Russell, Jack Parr versus NBWC, a drink to gossip about, and hardcore will never die, but you will. There's a positive thought. But before you go, time for small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. An Egypt-inspired uprising in Yemen. The budget battles of Washington heated up today. Lance Armstrong is retiring from competitive racing. Now for something you haven't heard, we're speaking with Pat Morrison. She is an L.A. Times columnist and host of her own talk show on KPCC-FM. Pat, what story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend? I'm still thinking about that suspected shoplifter at a Walmart in Utah. He tries to shoplift a netbook, and when he pulls a gun on the employees, they take the gun away from him. Their reward? They get fired. That's outrageous. Why do they get fired? Because it's a Walmart policy. You have to step away when a weapon is produced. I mean, I guess I understand the security issue, but what about the PR issue? (laughs) I I mean, I don't know if Walmart... (laughs) has watched an American Western in the last several decades, but we like it when the bad guy gets disarmed. That's true. seems to me. (laughs) That's true. But also, if you're not allowed to engage people with weapons, how do you talk to your colleagues at the gun department? (laughs) (laughs) Like, don't they sell guns at Walmart? Exactly. I mean, now, maybe it would have been different if if he had shoplifted the gun from Walmart. But no, it was the netbook thing. And the, the, the employees are saying, we didn't have any choice. Like, we were in a really small room. What were we supposed to do? Duck. <laughs> Pat Morrison, thanks for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a bed from the 70s, except instead of water, it's filled with booze. Is that good or bad for your back? I think the 70s were good for your back. (laughs) Anyway, here's the history part. Right around this time, back in 1960, Jack Parr gave America one of TV's great unscripted moments. Now, the young folks at your dinner party may not even know who Jack Parr was. Mm. Our friend Michelle Phillippe is here to tell you about it. Years before Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction, there was Jack Parr and the letters W and C. That's short for water closet, which means toilet. And in 1960, Jack Parr uttered those offensive initials while telling a joke on The Tonight Show. Back then, Parr was the show's host and the king of late-night TV. Network censors cut the joke anyway. So the next night, a few minutes into the show's live broadcast, Parr got up and left. His parting words, quote, There must be a better way of making a living than this. It wasn't the first time Parr gave NBC a stroke. A year earlier, he interviewed Fidel Castro and praised Cuba's communist revolution. And then there was the time he kicked Mickey Rooney off the show for being drunk. But the network couldn't stay mad at the king of late night. Here's Jack! A month after walking out, Jack was back. I believe my last words were, there must be a better way of making a living than this. Well, I have looked. And there isn't. Parr hosted the show for five years. Then his fill-in guest host took over, the way less controversial Johnny Carson. 
he held the post for three decades. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink. I'm speaking with Colin Davis, former bartender at The Rainbow Room in New York City. It's closed now, but it was located in 30 Rock, where NBC is still headquartered. Colin, what cocktail does that history bring to mind? One that comes to mind immediately would be the Stork Club cocktail because of the connections between Jack Parr and Walter Winchell, the famous gossip columnist. Oh, explain. There was a feud going on between them because of Winchell's red-baiting McCarthyism. Parr was somewhat of a liberal, and so he used his position to humiliate Winchell on the program. And, you know, it just ended Winchell's power. Okay. Winchell used to hang out at the Stork Club. That was his place where he would hold court, and there is a Stork Club cocktail. Oh, okay. And what's in it? Say one and a half ounces of gin, half ounce of triple sec, Mm -hmm. quarter ounce of fresh lime juice, an ounce of fresh orange juice, and a dash of Angus Juris bitters. On the rocks or up? You can have it on the rocks, but with most of these cocktails, they're traditionally served straight up. The other point is that this was the sort of watershed when TV superseded the print medium as a source of entertainment and information. And here we are years later and public radio has beaten them both out, so (laughs) just goes to show. So, Brendan, I still don't get what the heck is wrong with saying WC. It's like the initials Rico, could you not say heck? What? No, seriously. Families listen to the show. All right. You know what? Fine. Ladies and gentlemen, you can tell us what the heck you're thinking about at dinnerpartydownload.org. Forget it. Too cold out there. Our guest of honor this week is Karen Russell. Her short story collection, St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, put her on the literary map. She's been named one of New Yorker's 20 writers under 40. Her debut novel just came out. It's called Swamplandia. And Karen, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So the the book is about a young girl. She's raised on a Florida island trying to hold together her family-run alligator wrestling amusement park called Swamplandia. Right. And I want to know, is this based on any real place? You know, it's all autobiographical. It's all memoir. Uh, <laughs> I, I, Anyone who reads the book would know that's hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a really insane book in some ways. It is. But I, I guess I come from South Florida, where sure. it really doesn't feel like holding a funhouse mirror up to reality. It kind of feels like holding a mirror up to reality. <laughs> We've got a ton of just really strange roadside attractions. Sure. Some of the stuff I was drawing on was like the Miccosukee Indian Reservation. We would go on these kind of hallucinatory field trips out there uh, <laughs> when we were elementary school kids. So... All those lame kids in the Midwest were going to, like, the bread factory, but we got to go to... (laughs) That would be me, by the way. (laughs) Well, in South Florida, you get to go to, you know, an island covered with primordial monsters and... Alligators. You know, buy some beads in a gift store. Yeah, so I think some of that crept in there. I'm reminded of this place called Santa's Village. It was a Christmas-themed park outside of L.A. that closed, like, 14 years ago. Oh, sure. I went on the last day... And it was just the most depressing place (laughs) on earth. You know, what is it about a a, a decaying amusement park that just is so ineffably sad? It's that's so true, right? I was just out at Coney Island. You know, the boardwalk feels like a gangplank now. It's all up for demolition. (laughs) And there's something beautiful about it, but really eerie. You know, they've just got the Wheel of Fortune making the sound like this inhuman scream (laughs) all the time next to the Dunkin' Donuts. Everyone's just... Not so much amusement. Yeah, you feel like it's a party you showed up, you know, several hundred years too late for <laughs> just a little well I think in an interview you actually said an, an early influence was the sci-fi book The Day of the Triffids oh I love that book right yeah. in which alien plants take over humanity and I feel a little of this in here there's a little gothic horror <laughs> 
in the way you portray the swamp as insects and primitive creatures and, and creeping vegetation. I sense a kind of love-hate relationship to the place. Is that accurate? I really love it, actually, but I fear it. So maybe love-fear. <laughs> Part of what I like about those shabby amusement parks, you know, it just feels... It, you know, the, all the ticky-tacky, whimsical stuff is surrounding like a real monster. I mean, you have this really sort of ridiculous mom-and-pop, come-see, Seth, ancient lizard of death in this novel. and then they're, they're, but, it, but actually, yes, there's a Mesozoic lizard that lives in a pit in their backyard. Alligators so, are, are dinosaurs. Yeah, and so the swamp, right, and then there's all this sort of like cheesy infrastructure, like come take Uncle Bebop's airboat ride. But you get on that airboat and you actually are in, you know, this totally terrifying alien landscape. Well, listen, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. The first question is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? You know, one that's tough because I teach creative writing. And for some reason, people will feel compelled to be like, Karen, do you think writing can be taught? And you would never walk up to like a person in another profession. You know, I would never be like, do you really think people need to hear the radio? Sure. It's like, did you, you ever know. consider that your job is meaningless and worthless? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, I, just, I, I don't think that's true at all. Uh, our second question is tell us something we don't know that would blow people's minds at a dinner party. Okay. I thought this was the most amazing story I'd ever heard. There is this species of whale. You know, the whales communicate by singing, and they they have their, like, amorous love songs. But there's this one whale that they discovered off the coast of Japan that had, like, damaged vocal cords or it's damaged in some way. And so its song chased every other whale away. Like, it had just been swimming around the ocean all by itself for most of its life, being like, love me. And the sound of it saying, love me, caused all the, they they were like, what is that monster? We gotta go. (laughs) And like, the louder he sang his love song, the more all the ladies were like, run. Oh, man. Doesn't that seem like the saddest sort of metaphor for like... You found the one thing sadder than an abandoned family-run amusement park. (laughs) Now, Brendan, Karen did say she hadn't fact-checked the whale story. Mm -hmm. And actually, I looked online, and I couldn't find any mention of it anywhere. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but there you go. For the whale's sake, I hope it was a myth. (laughs) It's so sad to think about. It's (laughs) so much better as a metaphor than reality. That's the Dinner Party download for this week, people. Thanks to Jackson Musker, Robbie Carmen, and Marissa Gluck. And we leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. It's a song from the band Mogwai. This week they released their seventh album. It's called Hardcore Will Never Die, But You Will. The song's called San Pedro. Bon appétit.
I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And Walter, we said we'd take care of you. Just trust us. Ladies like the silent type. Yeah, and I'd lose the tie. <laughs>